So we're in Mark chapter 2, and we're going to go ahead and read verses 1 through 12 together. This is the word of God. He says, And he returned to Capernaum after some days, and it was reported that he was home, and many were gathered together, so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there, and they questioned in their heart, Why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus Perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your heart? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take up your bed, and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose And immediately picked up his bed, and he went out before them all, so that they were all amazed. And they glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. This is the reading of God's word. Let's pray this morning. Gracious God, we come to you this morning with a lot of things going on in our lives. God's thoughts of things that happened yesterday, of plans of things that will happen tomorrow. And God, I pray that in this moment you would still our hearts. That would you help us to see your word for what it is, the words of God to man. That you, God, would preach through me a better sermon than I could possibly ever do. That your word, God, would reveal to us who you are and who we are. And that you'd be gracious in helping us to become more like the image of yourself. It's in your name we pray and ask these things. Amen. What does it take for you to believe something? Like if somebody walks up to you and gives you something that you've never heard of, what is it it going to take for you to actually look at them and be like, yeah, that's probably true. There's a lot of voices around you in the world today that are, are competing for reality and truth. And almost every news media outlet centers itself on we're the truth, we're, we're getting rid of all the lies and we're exposing everything. And, and, and lots of people around you say that they know something about the truth that you've never heard. But, but what is the truth? In fact, if we're honest with ourselves, the truth is sometimes hard to figure out and We're kind of prone to enjoy a good conspiracy theory every now and then, right? Like, you hear something that mm, is a little off, but could be true. And that would explain that thing, which explains that thing, and suddenly your mind starts whirling. In fact, did you know that that's only uh, only 34% 34 of millennials actually believe the earth is flat? according to recent surveys. I mean, that means one out of every three people that you know who's a millennial believes that the earth is flat. According to the Guardian's recent poll, 
the, there is somewhere between 21 and 30 percent of all adults over the age of 24 that believe that the moon landings were staged in the case. Among Americans, there's large groups of supporters or truthers who devoutly believe things that are true or false. Okay? You have everything from Elvis to Area 51 to JFK assassinations. Uh, but you have that list that just goes on and on. And, and even things that should be easy to figure out, like what is healthy, are, are often skewered, right? Like, is, is it low-carb, high-carb, low-fat, high-fat, vegetarian, vegan, carnivore? Like, where do we figure out the realities of things? And, and the reality is, once you come to a position about truth, that you believe something is true, it's really hard to dissuade you from that position. It doesn't matter what kind of facts or realities that get involved. Like, those things need to be pushed aside because you know what's true. And you're convinced, and you'll even deny plain realities in front of your faith. And, and instead, all of those things are just fake news. They're, they're the deep state. They're those kinds of things. And, and it's really true about us, even with God's Word. When people come and they see God's Word, often they, they struggle with knowing... What's true about God and His Word? I mean, Mark's desire in writing his gospel is to convince you this morning, who read this passage, and the original readers of his book, that something is true. It's to convince us and them that the reality is that Jesus is the Son of God. The Savior of the world. He's both the suffering servant and he's also the triumphal king. He is the one who became lowly to bring us to God. And Mark mainly tries to convince you, the reader at this point, not by giving you lengthy teachings about Jesus or, or trying to help give you other people, but instead he constantly just shows you scene after scene after scene of people interacting with Jesus. And how they respond to the, and struggle through the question of who is Jesus. And, and in this section of Scripture, Mark cuts through this and, and he starts giving us a quick scene of a story that's probably familiar to most of us. If you went to Sunday school, you probably saw this on a flannel graph board at some point in your life. Okay, but, but in this passage this morning, beginning in Mark 2, verse 1, all the way through Mark 3, verse 6, Mark starts to give you the first of five accounts of a conflict that Jesus has. He starts to show you these people called the scribes and the Pharisees that introduce us as the reader to the opponents of Jesus. These are the people who don't believe Jesus is coming. That's not true. It couldn't possibly be true. These are the people who stand instead and say, we are the religious authority. We know what you're supposed to do. We know how you're supposed to live. Follow us. And in each of these episodes, Jesus confronts and supersedes their traditions and their presuppositions and their interpretations of the Tanakh and their customs that they've held to as an authority. And he clearly shows, I am the promised Messiah who's come to save the world. How do they respond? Of course, no, they reject him. And, and it shouldn't be surprising because John in his gospel says that the word came to his own, but his own did not receive him, chapter 1, verse 1. 
or verse 11. This, this group of people are those people who Jesus has come to. They, they know Jesus. They've heard his teaching. They've watched his miracles. And there they are seeing and hearing the Son of God with all the empirical evidence in front of them. And they just don't but, but some do. Some see Jesus and understand He is the Messiah. So Mark's question stands for us this morning as we go through this. How about you? What do you need to believe to understand what is true about Jesus? What will it take to convince you that He is who He says He is? And then more importantly, once you're convinced of that, what will you I want you to notice first on our passage this morning this crowded meeting that's going on in verses 1 through 4. Okay, Mark says that he had returned to Capernaum after some days. Okay, so for a little context, Jesus had left Capernaum, which is a little town on the north part of the Sea of Galilee, and he had gone out, according to chapter 1, verse 29, from the house of Peter where he had been staying. And, and he has gone out, in verse 38, to the surrounding villages and to all of Galilee. And what is he doing? He's preaching in the synagogues, and he's healing everybody that's come to him, and he's casting out demons. And, and Jesus now returns, and Mark notes that it was reported that he was home. Now, now this, this isn't his parents' house. that He's now completed the circuit and gone back to Nazareth. But it does suggest, from the way Mark describes it, is it's a place he normally stays when he's in town. Probably Peter's house that we saw in chapter 1, verse 29. And so you get home from a long journey of vacation. Brian the Garcia just got back from a short vacation to Hawaii. And, and when you get back and you get your bags and you drop them on the floor, what do you do? You go out and see your friends. You go out and do all No, you hit the sofa and you sleep for days. Why? You need a vacation from your vacation. And so Jesus, though, doesn't get this opportunity. Why? Because Mark says that there were many gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. Mark's gospel has been showing the rise of Jesus' popularity. According to verse 45 in chapter 1, Jesus couldn't even enter a town openly because people saw him and they started coming to him from every quarter. I mean, he's a celebrity. Like, he is the guy in the area right now. People know about this Jesus. He's the greatest show on earth. He's healing people. Clinics are closing down because there's nobody in line to see the doctor anymore. There's all these demonic people with mental health problems and other things who are just suddenly all better now. And, like, everybody is astonished at the teaching that Jesus has. And so they're coming to see him. And Mark indicates that these crowds have now followed him back to Capernaum. And this new rabbi has a crowd gathered that has filled the entire house. And it's, it's not just standing room only. Mark says, you can't even get near the door to listen into the room as the conversation's going on. So, so what is Jesus doing with all this new crowd and fame and fortune that's around him? Well, Mark tells you he was preaching the word to them, verse 2. Here's your proof text for those of you who are expositional preaching big guys, which I am like, Jesus is preaching the word. Like, that's what he's doing. Okay, And what he's saying here is the gospel is being proclaimed. Jesus, no doubt, is repeating the theme that Mark has shown the readers of repenting and believing that he has come as the Messiah. And in the midst of this crowded sermon, Mark records something interesting. Some people come in verse 3. 
It says, they came and they brought to him a paralytic carried by four men. Verse 3. I'm probably going to knock that off at some point, so I'm just going to And it's going to come back. So there's these four guys, and they're walking up to this crowded house with a stretcher with a friend who has a condition that prevents him from walking. He's paralyzed. And we're not really told the cause of his paralysis. I mean, he could have had an accident. He could have had a stroke. Maybe it's a birth defect. Maybe he has a condition like NLS or NS. It doesn't really matter. The point is that his friends heard about Jesus. And they believed what they heard. They had no doubt known other people who had been healed by this guy, and they were concerned for their friend, so they decided to take him to see this rabbi, this teacher. But the problem is, when they get to where Jesus is, Mark says, they couldn't get near him because of the crowd. No worries. They have a plan. When they couldn't get near, verse 4 says, because of the crowd, they removed the roof. And I think often we just like skip over that as something that's normal in your thing. But if you're in construction, that word means something. You like remove the roof? Like, I can't get through the front door. I'm just going to go take off the roof of the house and get down to see Jesus. Okay? And, and those of you who aren't up to date on your Palestinian architecture, allow me to maybe help you understand. Because for a long time, this in my mind was it was really hard to understand why they would destroy the roof of this home. And for most of us, our, our roofs are like this room. It's slanted. It goes up like that towards the peak at the top. But Palestinian roofs aren't like that. But, I mean, in your mind, you're imagining, like, carrying a stretcher up a slant up the side. And, like, I can't even carry a five-gallon bucket without feeling like I'm going to fall off of a roof. More or less, an adult human that I'm trying to carry who can't walk or move. And, and that's what's painted here. But... But the reality is in Palestinian houses, they have flat roofs. The outside walls are normally made of stone or block, and they're, they're covered over with a mortar of some kind or a stucco to where they, they're strong and they're secure. And instead, they run beams across the entire roof. And, and those beams are then resting on the exterior stone walls, and they're cross-hatched with smaller poles. And then those smaller poles are cross-hatched with sticks, and then those are covered with thatch or grass, and then those are covered with mud or a mortar mix, and then packed down to where basically you have a patio on the top of your roof. And normally these are accessible for, for the outside by a staircase of some kind. They were, they were meant to, to give a relief from the inside of the house that doesn't have any air conditioning or airflow that's going through and gets musty and dark, and often it was a place for people to to dry their laundry or to eat or to hang out or even Peter says he was up on the roof praying in the book of Acts. So, so these friends decide we're going to walk up the stairs on the side of the house and we're going to get up on top of the roof and they begin digging through layers and layers to make an opening big enough to lower a stretcher with an adult man on. Mark pictures these four men almost frantically trying to get their paralyzed friend to Jesus so that Jesus could heal him. And they seem to be unconcerned with the property damage that they're doing. It doesn't seem that they're worried about destroying Jesus' house roof, nor does it seem like they're concerned with the OSHA violations of the people down below them as grass and dirt and sticks and mud 
are falling down on this room that is crammed full of people listening to Jesus. Their only concern is getting their friend to Jesus. So they work, not caring about the time or the effort. Why? I want you to notice something that's said here that's revealed in verse 5. They believed Jesus was powerful enough to save their friend. They believed it so much that they were willing to do whatever it cost. And Mark says that when they had made that opening, finally, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And notice Jesus' response to this. He gives a confusing message in verse 5. In verse 5, Mark says, Jesus saw their faith. Jesus knew that they believed. Mark infers Jesus' divinity by describing his ability to see the hearts of the people who had come to see him and the actions of these men. And he knew what was in their hearts and the faith that they had to bring their friend. And their faith is probably not just a reference to the four who were doing this, but also to the paralytic who had come with them hoping to be healed. So what does Jesus do to this thing? He responds in the most climactic part of the story, and his response is something that should probably not be expected by the people who are sitting there listening to the interruption of this message. Yeah, I just want you to remember this, okay? You're sitting right there. Suddenly, pieces of wood and drywall are falling in on you, and you're trying to listen to this guy, and you're trying to move out of the way, but it's crammed, like, it's crammed, crammed. And suddenly these people disturb the message and they drop down a stretcher to the floor and there's an invalid laying on the stretcher. He said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. W. Brudman notes in his commentary that the Greek term son here is used as more than just an endearment or affection. It's primarily a term of superiority as someone who can act in authority or benevolence towards someone who deserves So what is the act of benevolence or authority that Jesus is doing? Sins are forgiven. The phrase is in a passive way, meaning that the action is being done by someone else. And Jews, when they would use this in that tense, they were normally indicating that this was something that God had done, or God was doing. Which is interesting because it seems implied by the people that heard Jesus say this, that Jesus was claiming he himself was doing that. Mark's mention of the forgiveness of sins should create an unexpected plot twist to this story. Because the normal response to, hey, can you heal my friend who is invalid, towards a doctor or a person who should be able to heal, is can you make him walk again? Can you fix what's wrong with his spinal column, Jesus? Can you give him the shots he needs to start getting better? What therapy routine would you recommend so our friend can start getting better? And Jesus' response is for something not medical, but even greater that the man He's not helping this man just live a normal life again. He deals with the friend's needs better than the people who ask could imagine. 
Instead of dealing with a temporary problem, Jesus dealt, deals with an eternal problem that he and we all do. He says, your sins are forgiven. And, and upon hearing that proclamation, the smart people in the room are wondering, like, what just happened? The scribes are upset. They're confused. The, the story now shifts away from the paralytic and his friends to the scribes who are in the room. Note in verse 6, it says, Some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts. Notice that they're not openly questioning this popular teacher. They're not like saying out loud, What are you talking about, Jesus? Like They're not doing that. That's political suicide. They're doing what you and I do having a pretend argument before I have an argument. My wife's going to say this. I'm going to say that. She's probably going to say this. But i got her because I'm going to say that and remind her of that and that and then I'm going to say that. Like, hold on. You do that in your head all the time around you. That's what they're doing here. It, 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 the wording indicates they're forming an argument with Jesus in their mind. And, and what are they upset about? Why do they want to argue with Jesus? They say, why does he speak like that? Verse 7, he's blaspheming. Their frustration was lying in what Jesus had said. Blasphemy is something about God or about God's work that doesn't give proper reverence towards God or proper credit towards God or it's used when you're profaning God, meaning you're saying God did something evil. And you're doing about God, his name, and his work. And according to Leviticus 24, verse 16, the penalty for that is death. So, this is what Jesus had just done in their mind. You just said to that guy who is probably sick because of some sin. That Remember, people thought that way in Jewish culture. Even the disciples had that view. When they passed by the man with the hand, they asked Jesus, Hey, who sinned? That guy or his parents? Like, that's why that guy is having a problem. But why is that guy poor? Probably because he's doing something bad. Like, that's how God punishes people, right? People have family problems. They have medical issues. They have issues of all kinds because they're not spiritual. They're not obeying all the right kinds of rules. And that's how God deals with them. Jesus says, no. God does those things for people. We don't always understand why that's happening, but, but this is the response that they're having. In fact, Mark tells you that they said, who can forgive sins but God alone? Here's the thing. Let's say you're a scribe. And the word scribe is maybe a little confusing. Maybe a better translation of that term is an expert in the law. You're a lawyer. Okay? No. Not to do it. I've always wanted this one. I've watched 17 seasons of Matlock. I've watched every rerun of every law show you've like, I'm ready. Okay? So, you're a lawyer. And you've been hearing about this Jesus guy. And you're kind of skeptical about what he thinks. There's stories floating around of him teaching without citing any references. Like he's not using commentaries or, or established people to show law precedent. Okay, law precedent is a big thing for lawyers, right? When they're arguing cases. And this guy hasn't done any of that. He's just saying, my own authority tells you you can do this or that. You've heard of him healing and casting out people, which sounds a little far-fetched, maybe a little ambulance chaser kind of for you. 
And so you go and you decide, you know what i got to do? i got to go hear this guy. And I go into the room, and it's already a little crazy because it's packed, and all these simple people are just listening to every word this guy says and ready to believe him. And so you're on your guard. And this spectacle happens. This guy destroys the roof, the, the audacity in the middle of a meeting about the law. This guy destroys the roof and comes down with this sinner sitting on the fringe. And instead of condemning them, he stops teaching about the law and he starts telling this guy, your sins are forgiven. That's unfathomable. Forget the fact about him rebuking. No true teacher of the law would tell a sinner that his sins are forgiven. Because he doesn't have that kind of force. The greatest Jewish spokesperson, the chief priest, could not forgive sins or even give a promise that that had been done. Let alone some Jewish backwood rabbi from Nazareth. In fact, there's a popular opinion among Jewish rabbis at this time that not even the Messiah, when he comes, could declare sins for you. That alone is reserved for God. Forgiveness of sins remains every time and every place the exclusive right of God. Why? The reason is that every sin that man commits, every breaking of whose law? God's law is an offense to God himself. The, the reason is that every sin committed against a neighbor God is the party who is most offended. What Jesus was claiming was an authority and a power that belonged exclusively to God. He couldn't just say that. He couldn't just look at a person who's disobeyed God and tell him everything's okay. This is blasphemy. It was, it was clear the claim he was making. He was saying, I have the same authority as them. To them, it's confusing because no good teacher, which is what everybody is claiming this guy, would say that because he's deceiving the people. He's making the people think, not only can he heal these people, which may or may not have been happening, right, in their mind, but he's also going a step further and telling them, I can forgive your sins. Just go to Jesus. There's no need for the law. There's no need for the temple. There's no need for that. Just go to Jesus. He's going to forgive your sin. For them, the height of dishonesty. And immediately, verse 8, Jesus perceived in his spirit that they thus questioned him for themselves. Jesus not only knew the faith of the paralytic and his friends, but he also knew the lack of faith and the doubt and even the rejection that was going on in the heart of the strife. So, he said to them, verse 8, why do you question these things in your hearts? Jesus let them know that he knows what they're thinking. And he decides to deal with that thinking by asking them a counter question. Hey, you ask me a question, how could you say blasphemy? Let me ask you another question. What's easier for me to say this? Hey, what's easier for me makes me look better to say the parallel? Your sins are forgiven. Or take up your bed and walk. Notice Jesus say, what's easier for me to say, not for me to do. From the scribe's perspective, the statement Jesus said was dishonest and easy for Jesus to say. Why? Nobody can prove that he didn't do it. Nobody can look at a guy and be like, your sins are forgiven. And like, 
Oh yeah, his sins are gone. I can clearly tell everything that's wrong with him is now fixed. You can't do that. But you know what would be hard to disprove? Oh, you're now walking. Everybody knows you can't walk. Get up and walk. Why? Everybody can see whether or not the guy can walk. It's clear. And so Jesus challenges them using their own line of thinking. What's going to be easier? For me to say to you, your sins are forgiven, or for me to say to him, get up and walk. So notice the convincing miracle that Jesus does in verse 15. He gives his reasoning so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sin. This isn't to show you that, hey, I have power to heal people. I'm going to heal him so that you can know that the other thing I just said is also true. I can forgive your sin and your glory. So, Jesus uses this term for himself, the Son of Man. It's the first of 14 times that Mark uses it in his Gospel. And in fact, it's Jesus' favorite designation for himself throughout the four Gospels. It's a term that could refer to an ordinary human being, or it could refer to a supernatural thing. It, it, it has overtones that are both human and deity, but unlike the term of Messiah, it's free from political or, or even military connotation. And, and this is what Jesus is trying to do. He's trying to get the people, stop thinking about what you think I will be like when I'm the Messiah. Oh, you're the Messiah, then you're a general, and you're going to do this, and you're going to do that. I want you to get rid of those kind of things from you. Jesus is forcing the people to give up their predetermined ideas of what he looks like and should be like, and instead forces the hearer to make up their own minds as to what kind of person he is. Is he just a normal guy who has some good teachings and likes to help out in his community, or is he the God-man? Is he the conquering king and the suffering servant, or is he just a fraud? Jesus declares to them the Son of Man not only has the ability to forgive sin, but the authority to forgive sin. The word he uses here is the same word that describes his teaching and his exorcism that happened in the synagogue in chapter 1, verse 21 and 28. It's, it's often used as a connotation of being God power. This is the authority from and emanating and belonging to God to do something. He's not trying to give any misunderstanding about where his authority to heal is coming from. The authority to heal and the authority to forgive are the same authority, and they prove it. Jesus says, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed. And in Mark-like fashion, the story just, Boop. he rose, and immediately he picked up his bed, and he went out before them. He's laying there, and he says, get up. Capernaum's a big town. But most of the people probably have seen this guy begging on the side of the road. If you take the same route every day, you're going to see the same panhandler standing on the side of the road. Not only this, like this is the synagogue, people know him there. This is a tight community. People know whether or not that guy his whole life had been unable to walk. And he grabs his bed and picks it up and he stands up, and immediately he goes out. It was complete 
an instant, and everybody witnessed, including the religious people. How did they respond? They were all amazed, and they glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. This is unbelievable. And the response of the people in English is a little bit hard to understand. Because in the Greek, it literally means their minds left them. Like, I don't even know how to reason this. Like, he just healed that guy. And by implication, it means he also forgave himself. You're like, cool. Cool story. I mean, again, I saw it all on the flannel graph in third grade. What's the point? I have just two things in a conclusion that, that I think would be helpful for us because Mark's question to the original reader of this book still stands for us. Who is Jesus? What are you going to do with him? I just want to point out two realities as a way of application. Okay? First, everybody believes something about Jesus. Jesus makes some pretty substantial claims about his authority in the book of Mark. One of those in this passage is his ability to forgive sin. And that's a big deal because it's not just that guy who was a paralytic who was broken that deals with sin. All of us. All of us. Romans says that all of us have sinned and we've all gone out and we have together become unprofitable. There's none that does good. No, not one. All of us this morning struggle in our walk to, to actually love God and keep His commandments. In fact, so much so that all of us deal with the consequences of those sins on a daily basis. We're all broken. And we try to fix that by loving our neighbor or trying to be a good mom or dad or making more money or trying to do those things that we think will fill the emptiness and the brokenness inside us, and it only reveals to us that there is no escape from this. All of humanity deals with the problem of sin. And Jesus' ability to forgive and restore is relevant to all of us. In fact, Jesus declares that His mission is to seek and to save those who are broken and lost and trapped in their sin. How? of his work on the cross as a suffering servant. That's the point Mark and his writers are trying to make in the New Testament. They declare to us over and over and over again that restoration to God and his plan for us is only made possible by the full sacrifice of Christ on the cross. He fully paid for our transgressions so that we could become holy as you and I are constantly trying to escape our brokenness, God, the Creator of all things, the One who made all things good, who knows best what your life would be like and should look like, who designed you to be happy and holy forever, gives His only Son as the remedy for the sin problem that we have. So that the perfect Christ would come down. Philippians 2 says, He didn't his equality with God as something to be grasped, but he took upon himself the form of a man and the form of a servant, and he humbled himself unto death, even death on a cross. 
Colossians says that He took all of the record of the debts that we had to God. Every way that we had failed and a ticket that we had received for our malpractice has been nailed to His cross. Christ alone frees us from the brokenness that sin caused. He can restore us to so if, if you are here this morning and you're just hurting, if you're here today and you're like, man, I just want to stop doing this thing. I like, I constantly get angry and I don't know how to stop her. I'm really struggling with my marriage right now. I'm really hurting. Those problems are even worse than you know because sin is what's causing them. It's not just a broken marriage, but it's eternal punishment. Because the God who can save has the authority to forgive is also the God who justly forgives. There are those of us who reject Christ. This will maybe be. And he doesn't have the authority to do this. He has all authority over These scribes we continually see over and over and over again the work and the teachings of Jesus. They would reject miracle after miracle. They reject the same is true for some of them. You've seen over and over and over the invitation of Christ, and you're like, dude, I've been to church my whole life. Great. It does nothing in the sight of God. No work that my hand can do would bring me to God. All our righteousnesses, the prophet Isaiah say, are just filthy rags not by works of righteousness which we have done, but it's according to His mercy that He saved. The gift of God, not of works, lest any of us should die. This is what the Bible teaches over and over again. You can't do just attendance to church and reading the Bible and be a good person and hope that one day God looks at you and says, you know what? Authority forgiven. It's all good. There is only one way to the Father and one way to be restored. That offers a son. You might know academically everything about his claims and his offers, and you still reject him. His mercies are new every day. He doesn't care about you. Christ stands ready to forgive the vilest, ugliest, brokenest person. He doesn't care about your family background. He doesn't care about your bank account. He doesn't care about your knowledge or your experience. He stands ready to forgive and restore all who call Everybody believes something about Jesus. Either take him at his word or we reject him. But notice that everybody's actions are then affected by that Last week, Pastor Harris said that that your attitudes and your actions are affected by your belief. I want to dive into that just a little bit more. I would tell you this, an old teacher used to tell me, you are what you are, and you do what you do because you think what you think about God. You are what you are, and do what you do 
because you believe what you believe about God. I think one of the examples of this story for us is praying for the friend to Jesus. If, if you really believe this morning that God has all the authority over everything, He created the world, that He holds everything by the power of His might, right, that, that's His declaration. Haven't you known? Haven't you heard? The Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, He doesn't faint. He's not weary. There's no searching of His understanding. He controls all things by His mind. That's it. Young people, they get tired all the time. Smart people, forget. But they that wait on the Lord, they will, they will mount up. They will run and not be weary. They shall walk and they shall. It is God who controls all things. You say, God, if you control all things, why are all these evil things happening around me? Why is there so much brokenness? Maybe God just doesn't love Calls to the prophet Jeremiah and says, I loved you with an everlasting love and with loving kindness. I loved you. Romans 8 declares that there's nothing that's able to separate you from Christ Jesus. He says, Don't do that. He did not spare his one and only Son for you. How then would he not freely give you all things? We are more than conquerors through him that loved us. There's nothing that's able to separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. So the reality is, if God is in control and God is loving, there's something else going on in a problem. It's me and myself. That is ultimately what's causing brokenness. That's ultimately what's causing these problems and these doubts of who God is. And I need to reset the reality of my theology. Because God is in control. I need to spend more time speaking to my soul than listening to the voices around me. You troubled soul. That's what the song says. Hope in God, you'll yet praise Him. Don't be downcast. Don't be discouraged. Hope in God. If that's the center point of your belief, that God is in control of all things, and that He has gracious and lovingly given me His Son, and He will therefore give me all things, and nothing can separate me from His loving hand. Like Job, we will suffer injustices with a heart that trusts in the Father's But that trust and that dedication will also lead us to action. Because if you believe that's true about God, then you'll commune with You'll pray and you'll read His Word because you need to figure out the heart sickness that's in you that constantly is pulling you away. You'll surrender your bodies as living sacrifices, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your spiritual worship. That's what you'll do. You'll end up loving the things God loves, like the other people in this world. You'll care and you'll sacrifice for the body. You'll hate the things God hates. You'll fight and you'll wrestle against sin. You'll surrender your will and desires to God. Friend, as an encouragement, over and over and over again. You'll try to do good and 
That's the most discouraging news I've ever heard. Why would you tell me that? It's Christ's fault. He will save We have a sure and steady anchor for the soul something that can't be moved when the problems in my life I am a great sinner, but He is a great Savior. You are more utterly wicked than you could ever possibly imagine. But you are utterly loved more than you could ever possibly imagine. What do you believe about Jesus? Is he some good dude who did some good things and has some decent teaching? Yeah. Is he the suffering servant? Will be the triumph? Is he that one that all of us will one day look to as he opens the scroll and will say, "Worthy, worthy is the Lamb to be praised." Wisdom, might, and glory, and honor forevermore. Fall down. The one who has the power, not just to provide for your physical needs, is also the one who has the power to provide for forgiveness of sin, to restore you, to hold you back. Who is Jesus? I just invite you to take a few minutes talk to God. Do business. Pray and to renew that in yourself. This week I'm going to witness because I believe what I've been told about you. I'm going to serve because I believe what's true. I'm going to fight against sin. I'm going to work on those things. I'm going to read my Bible because I believe what's said about you. If you don't know God, because you don't have a relationship with Christ, if you just come here to appease your conscience, Day is standing Not a word in our mouth that you know it all. Where can you go from your presence? Where can you flee from your spirit? Take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea. We go down and make our bed in the grave. Right hand for Christ. God, we pray that you would help us to stand back in the world. We pray that you would help us to see Christ. We claim the realities of